You're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim on Tuesday, March 12, 2019. So if you're listening on a different date, that means this show was either pre-recorded or is being rebroadcast. Hi, I'm your host, Greg McKim. I've worked in real estate since the late 70s, everything from digging foundations to owning a mortgage company. I'm a licensed real estate broker with Rockwell Realty and a licensed loan originator with Loanzilla. My loan originator license number, 106202, and the Loanzilla license is 67412. My intent on this show is to cover just about everything that has to do with owning a home, from buying to selling to reverse mortgages to remodeling to repairs, fire prevention, you name it. Of course, I don't have expertise in all those areas, My areas of expertise are specifically in mortgage and real estate, although I do have the background from way back in construction. Just to give you some idea of some of the things we've covered since I started my show in January, I had a segment on how to shop for a home loan where I teach you what I would do after 28 years of experience if I were looking to buy a home loan, specific steps and protocols and procedures for shopping for a home loan. I busted what I call some mortgage and real estate myths. On another show, I brought in an expert on reverse mortgages. Another show, I had a person in who represents a company that provides identity ID theft shields and prepaid legal services. I had a a, a retired captain from the Seattle Fire Department in talking about fire safety and what to do in the event of a fire. And last week, I had a contractor who has 38 years experience in both commercial and residential. Coming up next week, I have a company coming in, the owner of a company, a roofing company, who I've worked with for the last 10 years at the HOA where I'm the board president. They've probably done at least $200,000 of the roof work for us. We've gone through a number of roofing companies in my 20-some year tenure there, and they have proven to be the most reliable. They're very cost-conscious and they're wonderful to work with. He'll be talking about just about anything that I can ask him when it comes to roofing. The week after that, I'll have my cousin in, Steve Waltar. He is an estate planner, and he will talk about how you might um, you might incorporate your home or any other property owned into your estate planning. And the week after that, I'm bringing in a company I'm really excited about. Not that I'm not excited about the other ones, but this is kind of unique. It's a modular home company who has built the modular components to withstand fire to two or three times longer than a normal stick-built or modular-built home. I watched the video on it, and I got pretty excited because I think it's wonderful. So that's what has been on the air so far and some of the things that are coming up. Today, we'll be covering my tips on how to sell a home. But first, I'm going to share some real estate and mortgage news with you that I've recently read. I read about this sort of thing all of the time. You may have seen these articles, too. I'm going to uh, just get some snippets out of three Seattle Times articles. I like the Seattle Times when they they report on real estate because they do pretty in-depth, thorough, and usually accurate reporting on those three issues. The first one I'm going to start with is something that's a little bit of a I get a little bit up on my soapbox about, if you ever listened to me before, when I got in the mortgage industry, I was dismayed by the lack of ethics in the industry. I've tried to be almost a Don Quixote against uh, what I conceive to be a pretty consumer-unfriendly business. And, of course, you remember 
the 2008 debacle and how the big banks led us almost off to the cliff, but uh, they came out smelling like roses and continue to do the same thing. So I'm sorry for any of you people out there that bank with or work for Wells Fargo, but I'm going to read a little bit of a Seattle Times article that was in the business section today about how they continue their, I guess you'd say, consumer unfriendly practices. The title of this article is Wells Fargo CEO Heads to Congress Amid Claims That Their Reforms Are Slipping. Now, what you might remember is that three or four years ago, Wells Fargo was accused of and eventually owned up to creating, I don't know how many, but hundreds of thousands of fake accounts. So if you bank there, they would just simply set up an account in your name, no, no, no deposits, no activity, the idea was it made their balance sheet look better because when people buy and sell the stock on the, you know, on the, on the stock exchange, as they grow and supposedly take on new consumers and, 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 and add accounts, that means they're going to potentially be more profitable. Pure sham. And it came right from the top, even though the top's been really reluctant to admit it because it was pushed through all the divisions right down to the teller level. Another one a while back they were uh, accused of, and rightfully so, they end owned up to this too, they were pushing really expensive auto insurance on some of their auto policies and the 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 owner the, the auto um, the loan holder didn't even know about it and then I, there was another recent one and it just slipped my mind I should have made a bullet point on it but it slipped my mind so the point is they don't treat consumers very friendly now this is again one of my um, I guess pet peeves I I, I went when the big banks almost sank the entire world economy back in, and you can say it's not all their faults, but they were instrumental, if not the, the, the cornerstone of why it happened. We could argue about this and debate it for a long time, but they not only got off scot-free, they grew at the expense because the regulatory environment that, 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 that um, they devolved out of this actually helped the big banks. They're doing what they did before, hurt the regional and small banks, and hurt small mortgage brokers like me. We are making a comeback right now, by the way, because consumers have found that small mortgage brokers offer a wider selection of service and products than most of the big banks. So I'm a big proponent of shopping local. I try to shop local whenever I can. And um, in fact, this might be a little bit of a dangerous thing to say on air because I do have quite a few Amazon clients. I've never bought a single item on Amazon.com. That's how strongly I feel about local businesses and keeping my dollars right here in the community. Yeah, you could say Amazon is in the community. Yeah, well, maybe. They have a headquarters here, right? I have nothing against Amazon. Most of my friends and family shop there. It's just me. I feel the same way about big banks. So back to the bank thing. Back in 2008, when I banked with a pretty good-sized bank, KeyBank, when this all happened, I pulled my accounts. I said, I'm not going to be part of this. I don't want to contribute to it. I don't care if they're more convenient. I don't care if I get slightly higher rates on my checking or savings accounts. And I went to Home Street Bank, local bank, dollars stay here. And I, anybody out there that feels the same way I do, you know, encourage your friends and family to think the same way. I don't know if the legislators are ever going to get around to breaking up the big banks. They should. They have too much power. It's too concentrated. And they are not very altruistic with that power. So anyways, back to this article. If you want to look it up, Seattle Times, business page today, chief executive is going to go in and talk to lawmakers about their consumer abuse history because there's a new report that contends that they're backsliding. And here's a, here's a quote from somebody that actually um, works there. 
uh, in private bank, he says, quote, honestly, it's perceived as a joke. Oh, yeah, they've changed things, she said. I haven't met anybody personally who believes that there's what we're saying is actually the case. This is somebody that works in their private banking division. I'll give you some real specifics here. One of the things that they were said they were going to do is make their incentive program for their employees less on selling things and more on customer service. They've actually gone the opposite direction. For instance, back in 2017, you could get up to $1,400 in compensation for helping the customer have a good experience. It's dropped to $875. And by selling things, that's gone up from $2,500 to $5,700. So they're going the exact opposite direction. So if you're like me and those kind of things irk you, read the article in detail. Now, let's go on to a couple real estate news bits. One that came out on March 6th, title in the real estate section is, and that was last Tuesday, Market Turnaround. Again, this is the Seattle Times and the real estate section, I believe, is on the front page. King County home prices take biggest one jump month jump ever, which is counterintuitive. What everybody's saying is that prices have gone down and so on and so forth. Now, they have dropped since spring of last year, which was, and they fell to a two-year low in January. However, they rose faster in February, and the fastest they ever have in seven years, and the biggest single month increase ever, with one exception. The east, well, the, that's, that's Seattle. The east side didn't do that, and condos didn't do that. So it's pretty interesting. Now, the market is still really good for sellers, but overall, it has improved mainly for buyers, where we're finding more of the increases are in the outlying areas, which because they're more affordable. So people are willing to, to commute and put up with that drive time, and that's driving the prices in the outlying areas up a little bit more. Let's say you go out towards, you know, Inglenclaw, Covington, up north towards uh, Everett, and that sort of thing. But um, again, the, the median house price hit 730 in Seattle, up from 711 the previous month, but still down from a year ago. And the biggest gains were in southeast King County, where prices grew from 450 to 473. This is the median home price, half or above, half or below. It's not an average. Last month, and the, the main gains were $100,000. How Median price went up in Renton. So those outlying areas are improving. Now, here's a little bit of an interesting uh, forecast article from the Seattle Times written by the FYI guy. I like to read his stuff. This came out yesterday, and the title of this one is End of the Seattle Boom? Flow of New Residents to King County on the Decline Record Show. And this is a measurement of people who apply for driver's licenses. That's one way that you can monitor growth and potential gro- growth. So for the second consecutive year, the number of driver's licenses issued to New King County residents from out of state declined. Now, since 2000, I'm reading right from the article. Since 2010, Seattle was the fastest growing city in the U.S., and of course, the cost of living went up a lot. Um, But as we look towards the future, you're thinking, what's going to happen? Less people coming in should help the real estate market calm down. So that's a great article to read. Again, the, the number of driver's licenses issued has dropped as opposed to continue to increase. I won't go into all the specifics. You might want to look that one up in yesterday's Seattle Times. I think that was in the B section, which is the, the, the living, Northwest living. I don't remember the, the main section. Okay, so let's go to today's topic, which is how to sell your home. 
On February 26th, I covered how to buy a home. And you can listen to that on podcast, if you'd like, at 1150kknw.com under audio archives. You'll find Home Talk with Greg McKim in the archives. Again, that's 1150kknw.com. Um, if you want to call in during the show today, you can reach us at 425-373-5527. Again, 425-373-5527. Or you can always reach me off air, 206-250-6545. Again, that's Greg at 206-250-6545. Or you can reach me by email at gmckim, that's gm. C-K-I-M at LoneZilla.com. That's LoneZilla.com. Or you can go to LoneZilla.com on our website. So let's talk about selling your home. First thing you want to do is sit down and figure out, figure out what's your motivation. Now, you think, oh, that's common sense. Yeah, but you really, it's, it's surprising. Sometimes I'll sit down with somebody and they really hadn't thought all the way through. And then if you're a couple, you might find that you have some conflicting ideas. Happens periodically. Most couples get along perfect. They never have any you know, difference of opinions or any, any quarrels or anything like that. That's been my experience in life. Right, Eric? You too? Yeah. Okay. So what's your motivation? Might be you want to get top dollar. You want to sell it for as much as possible. You might have a timing thing. Let's say you've got a job offer in a different place. You've got to move. Or another timing would be um, you are building another home or buying another house, and that thing's about to get done, and you got to sell your house, even if you can't get top dollar for it. Another motivator sometimes is convenience. You might not really care about the timing, the price. You do want to sell, but you, you want to have the least amount of hassle to do it. You don't like a lot of intrusion. You're just trying to figure out a smooth, easy transaction. And another important motivator, these are the four that I always talk about, certainty. Well, how sure am I can I, can I sell the house? How sure am I that the buyer who's made the offer is going to close. Those are four motivators. You might have your own, but really sit down and list those and think about them. The next step then is to find a real estate broker. Of course, if you've already worked with one, you trust and like, that's probably the best place to go. The next best place to go would be somebody's referral from a friend or relative that you've worked with. Then, of course, you can just start shopping around. There's many, many people out there advertising their services. There's many real estate brokers to work for. Now, if you or looking for a real estate broker, you want to mainly concentrate on two things. Their experience, how long they've been in the business, what kind of other things, industries and um, occupations they've been involved in that lend themselves toward or to the real estate industry. The other is their expertise. That one's a little bit hard hard to ascertain um, because how do you, everybody says they've got great expertise, everybody says they have a plenty of experience, Experience is a little bit easier to do because you can, you know, look at a resume and maybe ask questions, but expertise. So what, you, what I always ask, what I always say is just ask them to show you. Don't give them leading questions. Just say, what is your plan of action? How do you monitor all the paperwork and all the steps that take place? How do you communicate? What, what, how, how are you going to help me list this house? How are you going to determine what the value is? What's the best way to present the house? And they should ask you a ton of questions before they tell you anything because they need to understand you. In fact, you know, I have an entire list of, of things that I go through with this, um, which if you like it, I, I'll go ahead and send to you. I, I, um, let me see if I can find it. I don't know why I didn't bring it to that. It was kind of silly. Well, again, back to ask them to tell you exactly how they go about selling a house. 
and why their expertise will lend itself to you in the best way possible. Some examples would be, here's another home I sold, here's the price we listed it for, here's what we got for, and they can show you with documentation that that's what happened and that's what they did. Um, the other would be showing you in either their, their, you know, their calendar or on a spreadsheet or some sort of bullet points, checklists of how they do things. So, for instance, in my case, if I'm helping you list your house, I have all kinds of spreadsheets where I keep track of everything. I have a whole checklist of all the steps that go through. And before the house gets listed, there's about 30 things to do. Then after the offer comes in, there's a number of things that need to be done to get it done properly. And how do you follow up on that? Well, I have tickler files and I have um, plans of action for everything that comes in the door, how to follow up through on it to make sure that it gets done. It gets done in an appropriate time frame. Those are the types of things you want somebody to show you, how they plan and what they do. Not just talk about it, but actually show you in real time, real world, what they do. So that's part of um, picking a real estate broker, experience and expertise. The other is, does it matter what firm they work for? I don't know. It's up to you. Some people like the idea of working with a large firm like a Windermere or a John L. Scott. Other people want to work with small firms. When I work for, we have about 20 or 30 brokers. The owner of the company, Jim Rockwell, has been in the business 40 years. I've known him for longer than that. I've known him since junior high grade school, which is one of the reasons I work for him. And I like small firms because they give us a lot of latitude on how we approach our business within ethical, obviously ethical and legal limits. So it's up to you what kind of a firm. I would say that as far as firms go, if you're working with a novice, somebody who hasn't been in real estate very long, I would pick somebody who works for a pretty good-sized firm. They have a little bit more support. Um, not that Jim doesn't give support to his people, but he, his, the people that work for Jim are experienced like me. They know what they're doing. He doesn't have to handhold them all the time. So um, now I want to say something I think is maybe not real fair, but a lot of when you, when you have somebody come out and make a listing presentation to you, keep in mind that a lot of it's smoke and mirrors and sales. The real estate broker that comes out to your house and meets with you clearly wants your business. And a lot of the things that they do are what I call fluff. They'll show you the, the nice big book that they put on the table in the kitchen for, for buyers to look at. And you'll find these when you go look at houses. There are three-ring binders with a bunch of information in it. I can't remember in my 10-year career in real estate a single buyer that read one of those things. They're just fluff. But there are some things that they, that they should tell you that they do, and we're going to go through some of these today. But you can, you can see through the things. Cause think of yourself, when you bought a home, what you looked for, what really mattered to you. Um, the other thing, last but not least, about buying a real, getting a real estate broker is don't be afraid to talk about commissions. It used to be pretty hard to get people to, um, to reduce or negotiate their commissions in any way, shape, or form, but it's much easier these days than it used to be. So that's something you want to talk about openly. And you've got to be careful. I mean, obviously, you get what you pay for. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't be afraid to ask what, if any, wiggle room you have. So those are the three big points. Expertise and experience in who they work for and commissions. Those are four points. All right, I'm going to take a break right now. And then we'll come back and, and finish up some more segments here. You're listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim. This is a show that I, I've, I've produced to cover home ownership from A to Z. We air each Tuesday from 3 to 4 here on 1150 AM KKNW. You can call in during the show at 425-373-5527. We'll be right back after these messages. Don't go away.
Together, we can turn a stairwell into an ER at a moment's notice. Together, we can turn a rescue ship for refugees into a maternity ward. Together, we can vaccinate 710,000 people in just 11 days. Together, we are Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders goes where others don't to provide life-saving medical care. Learn more at doctorswithoutborders.org. Every winter, up to 20 million tons of salt are applied to U.S. roads. Road salt can keep drivers safe. But when too much salt is applied on roads, it can pollute streams, kill fish, and increase salt levels in our drinking water. The good news is we can protect water quality and keep drivers safe. You can help. Join the Isaac Walton League's Winter Salt Watch to receive a free stream test kit. Then, simply dip the test strip in your stream to measure the salt level. Use your smartphone to share your results on the Winter Salt Watch map. If the salt levels in your stream are too high, the Isaac Walton League can share ways other communities are reducing salt usage. Ask for your free test kit today. To get yours, go to saltwatch.org. That's saltwatch.org. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Hello and welcome back to Home Talk with Greg McKim, the show that covers home ownership from soup to nuts each Tuesday at 3 to 4 right here on 1150 AM KKNW. During the show, feel free to call in at 425-373-5527. So in the last segment... I covered a couple of time, Seattle Times articles. One was about Wells Fargo shoddy business practices, um, home prices in February, and then projections for people moving into the Seattle area over the next few years based on driver's license applications. Then I started talking about selling your home. We covered your motivation, price, timing, convenience, certainty. What are your motivations? Now, while I was doing this, my producer here, Eric, we started talking during the break. He is thinking in the near future about selling a home. So, Eric, what from that first segment did you get out of that? Did you, was there anything that you had any questions about? or? Uh, you know, I feel like you're really doing a great job uh, covering important stuff. And I know we've got a call coming in, so I want to grab that, and then we'll come back to this, okay? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Okay, so I'll wait. For a second, we'll review what I talked about while the caller is being hooked in. So one of the things I was talking about during the break with Eric is that a lot of times when people are thinking about selling their house, they kind of have an idea of how they want to do it, but they're not 100% certain what their motivations are. And then they end up going in different directions. So you want to know really clear what your motivation is so you can build your marketing plan and your whole approach to the home sale based on your motivations. So uh, we have Jane calling in from Seattle. Hi, Jane. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Fine. Thanks for calling. What can I do for you? 
Um, I am considering selling my house maybe next year, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if you could go over the differences between a buyer's agent and a seller's agent. Ah, okay, I will do that. Now, just to throw a little curveball at you, Jane. Okay. In 2010, the, the, the uh, state of Washington decided that we're no longer supposed to call ourselves agents. Okay. I guess they had nothing better to do, Jane, down in Olympia. <laughs> So we're now supposed to call, it used to be that you worked as an agent for yeah. a real estate broker. Now we work as a broker for a real estate firm. So just in case you get this confusion that comes along, I'm supposed to call myself a broker and other people are, but we, we're kind of sloppy about it. So the difference okay. between a selling broker and a buyer's broker is one of the, your question mainly, right? Correct. Okay. And now there's different terms for that too. So typically the person who represents the seller is what's called a listing broker because they list the property in the multiple listing service in order to help sell it. You can also call them the sell. The, excuse me, back up. We don't call them the selling broker. We call them the listing broker. All right. And I want to tell you why that is. For years and years and years, Jane, in the multiple listing service, the person who brought the buyer in was called the selling agent slash selling broker because they actually found the buyer and sold the property. So if you call a person a selling broker, people will get confused and say, well, is that the buyer's broker? So to make it really clean, the person who represents the seller is the listing broker, and the person who represents the buyer is called the buyer's broker and sometimes called the selling broker. Okay. Now, those people have a fiduciary responsibility to you to represent your best interest. There's actually legal, we, we are legally licensed to transact real estate and we have legal obligations. And fiduciary means we have to put your interest above our own. So a listing right. broker, they're, they're, they're trying to do, based on your instructions, what's best for you. And the selling or buyer's broker, the same for the buying party, right? Right. Does that make, all, that make sense so far? It does make sense. Thank you. You bet. Now, in this state, it's legal for the listing broker to represent both the seller, Jane, and the buyer. Mm. It's legal. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, personally. And if someone asked me to do it, I'd say no. Right. You, you agree? I agree. In some states, that's illegal. And how can you represent two people that really have a conflict of interest? It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? No. Now, to be a little bit wonky on you here, and if you want to, you know, tell me to shut up, I won't be offended. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's fine. The reality is, is that you are actually listing with a firm. For instance, if you list your property, it'll be with a firm like Windermere or Rockwell. And then the firm assigns the particular broker, say Greg McKim, to represent the firm on your behalf. But you don't, a, a real estate broker isn't licensed to do the transaction. They're licensed to represent a firm. And why is that important? Well, because, look, let's say you listed your home with Windermere, and another Windermere agent, the buyer's broker, comes in with a buyer. Well, technically, the firm is representing both sides, aren't they? Yeah. Because they're the same firm. But for practical purposes, they're not, because the person that's been assigned to represent you, Jane, has a fiduciary responsibility to represent you, even though they are working for the same company as the person who represents the buyer. Make sense? Okay. I understand. Did, did that answer the initial question that you started with when you called in? Yes. I think what makes it clear to me is that they both have fiduciary responsibilities 
to the person that hired them. And if I really want someone who has my best interest in mind as the seller, then I'm going to be looking for a listing broker. That's right. Now, there is a pamphlet that by law, when I start to work with a a client, I have to provide them before I do any work. It's called Mm -hmm. the Law of Real Estate Agency. It's about a six or seven page pamphlet. If you'd like, I can shoot you off a copy by email. Or if, mm-hmm. if you prefer I don't have your email, we can figure out some other way to get it. You could get it from somebody else you know. But it's not. I always recommend that my my, 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 my my sellers and my buyers read that and ask me any questions about it because it's important information. Okay. So it's called the Law of Real Estate Agency. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they don't call it brokerage GG, but that probably is not a very good word, right? So. No, probably not. <laughs> so. <laughs> But you might be able to find it online, or again, if you want, you can you can I can email it to you if you want to if you want to give the email to um, Eric off off air because obviously you don't want to broadcast your email over the air here. Right. Okay. <laughs> any yeah, other that's... any other questions or 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 anything else you want to talk about? Well, uh, along the same lines, um, I have a friend who is a, a broker, but he is a I'm trying to use the right term. He is a buyer broker okay so, so he, he only he, he only works with buyers he doesn't like to work with sellers he will work with sellers and my my what i'm wondering is does he have the same skill set i mean is he, he going to know how to set up my house yeah he should sell as okay yeah all right so no. that part doesn't really matter it's not that they have a different skill set it's just that they have different fiduciary responsibilities that's correct i do know some some brokers have a preference. Some brokers prefer working with buyers. Others, in the real estate industry, there's this old saying, list to live, buy, you die, which is if you have a lot of listings, see, I could have five or six listings, and there are a bunch of transactions going at once, and I make more money. If you're mm-hmm. with a buyer, you get stretched thin really fast helping buyers because there's just so much more work to do with a buyer. So, But, and so, but some people prefer doing listings because it's a little bit easier, more money. Others prefer working with buyers. I like them both because I find them both interesting. It seems like it'd be nice to have a balance of both. Yeah. Usually my clients are, are, are either selling and buying and doing a loan with me or, you know, it's it's fun to do it all one all one because then you have a continuity and a, a common thread throughout the whole thing. So. Right. But, yeah, your friend who's a buyer's broker, I'm sure he or she would be more than happy to help you list the house and should have the skill set to do it. Okay. Now, have you talked about this on another show about how does how does a seller, uh, for example, for me, how do I determine whether this year or next year is the is the year to sell? I mean, I'm sure there's some <laughs> metrics for me to look at and some research to do. Boy, I wish know. there was. I wish there was a formula. Um, okay. So the first thing I'd start with is, you know, what's your motivation? You right. Know, is are you trying to get top dollar for the house? Then you probably want to right now. You want to consider selling sooner than later because we're seeing a slight downward trend. Although, right. if you listen to the beginning of my show, they had that one-month jump. Uh, you know, did were you were you did you tune in at the beginning of the show? I came in about three ten. I think I missed it. Okay, well, I'm going to refer you to the Seattle Times. I I, I brought in an article that was published okay. on March sixth. This okay. uh, and it, it's it's the title of it. Jane is market turnaround question mark King County home prices take biggest one-month jump ever. Now, they're still down from May of 2017, or 18, excuse me, but they took a huge jump. It's, it's, it's like reading tea leaves. <laughs> Everybody has an opinion. Another yeah. article that I mentioned was put together on, it was yesterday, it was, it was published yesterday by the FYI guy. Are you a Times reader? 
Um, only occasionally, but I did come in at that part, and I heard okay. that arc. Yeah, so he's he's those these are the kind of things we look at. It's like, okay, what kind of a population influx are we having? What are some yeah. of the economic forecasts? But it's stuff. It's hard to call. It's hard to call month to month. And there's pockets where home right now people are making multiple offers. Others, a house is sitting in the market, and the prices are dropping. So there's many factors. But I would say that the odds of home prices continuing on that upward climb that we had the last six years are probably getting slim. Yeah. There's only a certain bound. Where's your home located? North Seattle. Okay. Like kind of the Greenwood area. All right. Well, you've got a, a high appreciation, dense, you know, in, in, in city location. Those are the ones that theoretically are, have started to peak out because people just can't afford them anymore. Yeah. And that's why people, you know, Southeast King County was the fastest appreciation. Then, then, but it's hard to say. But so back to motivation. Okay, if is it a lifestyle change, and you need your time to figure it out? Do you need the top dollar right now? You know, what what are you trying to accomplish? So hard to say exactly. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's a good. That really is a good further conversation. It is. Whoever you yeah. talk to, I would talk. You know. The, the four motivations that come up most of the time with my, buyer, my, my, my clients are price, the timing, the convenience factor. You know, there's things going on in life. Sometimes it's just not a good time to sell, right? It's mm-hmm. just too much going on. And then there's the certainty. You know, am, am I going to be able to sell right now? Like if you were in 2009, you had to sell. It might have been, been a challenge. There's, right. there's different components of certainty. When I opened the show, I talked about certainty that the buyer is going to perform, but the other certainty is how likely is it I'm going to sell in this particular market? So does that okay. help a little bit? Yeah, that helps a lot, and you give me a lot of food for thought. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, but I'd, I'd maybe like to have a further conversation with you offline. Okay. Um, my, my mobile phone, you ready to write this down? Mm-hmm. 206 250-6545. You got it? Yeah, 6545. Yeah, 206-250-6545. Okay. Thanks. Appreciate That's your great. call. Thank you so much. All right, oh, Jane. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Great questions from Jane. She yeah. actually asked a couple that I had been mulling over myself. And another one that I would add to the question is... Um, how do we know what the best upgrades to make, or should we make any upgrades in a, a seller's market? Is it, is it going to pay off to have any work done on your house? Uh, yes. It seems like you get different opinions on all those things all the you time. do. Now, do we ha- are we required to take a break right no, now? No, no. Let's just keep going then. Go okay. as long as you like. So um, we talked about motivation, picking a, lo- a broker. Now- this is one of the things that I tell my sellers all the time. Think like a buyer. When you buy a house, think about how you went, viewed the house. Now, here's a typical thing when you buy a house. You go through it with a magnifying glass. You know, there's a little scuff on the door and you get hung up about it. Then you live in the house and it looks like crap for 10 years. <laughs> then you go to sell it and you fix it up nicer and you never lived in it, right? right. This is human nature. But think like a buyer, Okay. So that's, that's a, I say it all the time to people. Think like a buyer. But right now we're going to talk about you, picking a, you pick a broker. Now, the home price. How do you establish your home price? There are so many different ways to do it and opinions. And that'll help, we'll get towards the other question you have, which is upgrades. I have it in a section down below here. So the most common way that a real estate broker helps you establish a market price is through something called the comparative market 
analysis. If you go to um, the, the multiple listing service has those available for us as real estate brokers, and they can be as long as 50 pages. Now, I'm not, there's going to be a couple mortgage brokers, maybe, I mean, excuse me, real estate brokers listening to the show who might not like what I'm about to say, but I hate those things. <laughs> I, there's just too much information without any summary or conclusion. Pages and pages and pages and pages. Then you go, oh, I don't know. Well, of course, a good real estate broker has a gut feel based on information of what your price should be. And it includes recent home sales. The reason it's called a comparative market analysis is because you're comparing other homes. And one of the terms that's used a lot in the real estate industry is a comparable property. Comparable sale, comparable active home, which is one that's listed and not currently in contract, and comparable pending. So those are the three categories. A home is actively on the market. A home is pending. That means somebody right now is waiting to close based on contingencies like inspection and financing, or it's sold. Ideally, you have a mix of those, but the sold homes are the ones you put the most weight on because you don't know what an active home is going to really sell for. It might be listed for 500, but it might sell for two. We don't know, right? I mean, obviously that's kind of a stretch, but it might be listed for five. It might sell for 480. The pending homes, they're, they're a little bit better indicator because if it went pending, it probably was priced pretty good. The homes that have been active for a long time are usually overpriced. And then the sold ones are the best because those sold, right? Now, there are some challenges with all these things. So the sold homes in that market we had for a while there, listing you'd list a house, you'd use the sold comps, comparable sales comps, and everything sells for more than the comps did anyway. People come in and bid 10, 15, 20% over everything that's sold. And real estate brokers are just scratching their heads. This is crazy. But it's, it is a starting point. So that's now... I, I said at the beginning that you can get a comparable market analysis or a CMA from a real estate broker up to 50 pages. Now, I'm going to toot my own horn here a little bit, but this is what I would do, and this is what I do. Since I've been in mortgage business since 91, I've seen more appraisals than I, can ever, I could ever count. And the, the appraisers have a standardized format for comparing homes. So I wrote a spreadsheet, and that's what I do. I go line by line. I make adjustments for things like square feet, condition, location, road noise, age of the home, style of the home. That helps you put it all into a spreadsheet. Now, it's still not infallible. What I try to do is I try to get it within about 5% of what I think. I, I think I can get within about 5% of the home will really sell for if I'm listing a home or 5% of what I think it's worth if I'm buying a home. But you can throw it out the window when it's, you have a market like we did the last couple of years because it's just almost all meaningless because it's driven by irrationality, a lot of it. So- but that's really important when you talk to a real estate broker interviewing, ask them, how do you determine the value? One of the things that I encourage my clients to do with me when I'm listing a home is let's go look at some homes that are on the market. Seeing a home online in a picture, you'd be surprised when you walk in how different it can look. Carpet that looked perfect and immaculate in a picture isn't. A floor plan, you just didn't really see how those rooms, that big wide-angle lens made it look bigger than it really is. Or sometimes floor plans are just yucky. They're just you, you wasted space, or you go up this little flight of stairs here or down here. And the same two homes that are roughly the same in square foot, bedroom count, everything, one of them you wouldn't consider buying just because of the floor plan. So it's really important. Obviously, when you're buying a house, you got to go see them. But surprisingly, not that many people in the list of house go out and look at them, and I do, whenever I can. I say, let's go look at the homes that are on the market today because those are, one, your competitors. Two, it'll give us a much better feel for what we should list your house for. 
And if you can get into them, get into the pending ones. Usually you can go into pending homes. Not always, because sometimes the seller says, no, I'm done. I don't want anybody trooping through my home. Of course, really hard to get into a home that's sold. I don't know if I've ever been able to do that. So um, what about an appraisal? Should you get an, an appraisal instead of having the real estate broker give you an evaluation? Or should you use something like county tax records or the tax assessed value, I mean, or Zillow? Eh, those are not quite as good as having a real estate broker do some of the work I just discussed. And I'll give you a great story about an appraisal. So about this time last year, I had a listing in a condo in downtown Bellevue. And uh, about a month before, he said, I want to get an appraisal. So I put him in touch with a person I've used for appraisal since 1992. His name's Scott. And Scott used the methodology that appraisers use and came up with a value of 625 and I put on the market for 680 because I thought we could get more. Put on the market for 680 had an offer two days, I think actually one day afterwards, didn't have the offer written in hand yet, but somebody says we're making a full price offer. <laughs> that Saturday, I put on the market on Thursday. I did an open house. I bumped into a guy who had a listing, same floor, same floor plan, not as good a condition as the property that I was working with, he had listed, he was selling the property off market. That means it was not listed with the multiple listing. That's perfectly legal. You can do whatever you want. And he had it listed, he had it in contract. That means he had a buyer in contract for $715. I immediately raced back to the office, changed the list price to $710. And we got $710 from that same buyer that initially told us verbally they're going to do it for $680. Here's the real kicker, though. So everybody thought, oh, my gosh, Greg McKim, you're a genius. Man, I want to use you to list houses. I mean, it was pure luck. How, 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 what do you think the odds are bumping into a guy in a hallway where the property isn't even on the market and he's telling you he's in contract for 715 Of course, I, you know, I hustled and got it done. But here's the interesting thing. Not a single other person made an offer on that property or expressed any interest at all. None. For some reason, this particular buyer wanted to own in that complex. They had their eye on it for a long time, so they made an emotional decision. Now, by the way, one month later, the market started dropping. I bet they're not super happy right now. So real estate is quirky. That is, that's a great example right there, Eric, of how hard it is to figure out what the true value of a house is. Got in a professional appraiser. He's been appraising homes for 35 years, 625. Hmm. Use my professional advice, 680. I sell it for 710. Why? So, so we shouldn't just check what the Zestimate is on the <laughs> Zillow or whatever. There are so many <laughs> factors, yeah. and, and every one of them is individual. And, and mm-hmm. Now, ideally, of course, you've got five houses that look just like yours, built the same year, same condition. Oh, gee, but it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's just not an ideal world out there. Every one of them is individual, and you sit and talk with whoever you're interviewing, and you think through, and you, you listen, and you think, does this make sense to me? And then Now, one rule of thumb that I like to use is don't overprice your house. Right now, you'll see homes with the prices dropping because a lot of sellers overshot the market. What they do is they say, well, home prices are going up, home prices. It would be better to always be slightly below the market, especially in a seller's market, because then you're, you're likely to get people to bid up a little bit. When you're above the market, buyers look at it and say, see, even though you'd say, well, why don't they just come and make a lower offer? Buyers aren't big on doing that. You think about it yourself. I don't know if I want to offer them a lower price. I mean, they must think it's worth that. It's a psychological barrier. 
But people, that they like a house and they think it's a good value or right at market value, you might get two or three offers and then it'll bid up a little bit. Try not to overprice it. Try not to race ahead of the market, which is what a lot of sellers did in this recent run-up in prices. And they, they overpriced their houses because they go, oh, I can get this much. Houses are going up every month by 10% or whatever it was, you know, 5 2%. I'll raise mine by 10%. So um, now the last thing you need to know is how much you need to sell it for. I mean, when you have a motivation, okay, we're, we're building new construction. We're building our dream house. You know, it's on top of Mount Rainier. We're going to have a great view. And we gotta, we got to sell our house. we got to make this much money within this time frame. Of course, if you don't have that motivation and all you want to do is wait for top dollar, do it. But if you know your motivation and you have a net that you need, or a, 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 then you can plan around it and accept it. Okay. Um, one of the key things to selling a house, and now we're going to get into answering Eric's question about upgrades, is the appearance of the home. Again, think like a buyer. So you walk into a home and you like a clean home. What a buyer wants to do when they buy a house is they want to move in. They don't want to fix things up. They don't want to remodel. Now, let's take it back. Most buyers. There's always the buyer that's looking for something to fix up, maybe fix it up and flip it. But when you're selling a house, you want to appeal to the broader market, not the niche buyers, because the more buyers who are interested in your house, the more likely you're going to get offers, the more likely you're going to sell it at a higher price. So how do you make sure your house has appropriate appearance? Well, of course, it depends slightly on how, you, how it starts. I always advise strongly that every one of my sellers gets their own home inspection. Have an inspector go through and look for every single thing that's wrong with the house for two reasons. One is you want to fix them before the buyer gets there because their inspector is going to find it. Now, you say, well, in a hot market, people are waiving their inspections anyway. That's reason two for you to have an inspection. Give me an example. Okay. So January of 2018, I had a listing down in Renton. The listing that I had, I put on the market about three weeks after the exact same home sold, which was two blocks away. Built the same year, same floor plan, same builder. You couldn't have had a better comp. I don't remember the exact number, but they sold it for around 405. However, they didn't have an inspection done, and they didn't do a couple things I'm going to list here in a second. I helped my buyer sell that house for $20,000 more than that other home, and here's the two main reasons why. One, I had an inspection done, and we addressed everything, and the things we didn't address, we told the, the buyer that we would, we would take care of it in some way, shape, or form and negotiate how we are going to do it. So why was that important? Because when you're having, we had multiple offers. When the, back to think like the buyer. In a multiple offer environment, buyers are going out and finding homes and getting either waiving their inspections, which makes buyers nervous, or they're doing what's called a pre-inspection. If, and pre-inspection is we were common back in that hot market. You get five or six people coming through before any of them made offers, getting inspections on a house that only one of them is going to be able to buy. So inspections are like four to $500. So if a person's done two or three of those, they're sick of it. They've made three offers. They've spent 1500 bucks. They don't want to do it anymore. And they also don't want to waive their inspections. So guess what I do? I remove that obstacle. Because as a seller, what you want to do is you want to make it as easy as possible for a buyer to buy your house. And one of them is to give them, don't give them reasons not to. 
if they don't have to waive their inspection, whoo, that takes a weight off of them. If they don't have to worry about getting a pre-inspection and a multiple bit, so get one. And then also that gives you the opportunity to catch things in advance. So the second thing we did is their, their carpet was trashed. I said, go out and put new carpet in. So the new carpet cost them three grand, but we still net $20,000 after the expenses we did on that house, carpets and other things. And almost every other thing in that house is identical to the other one, but the other house sold for $20,000 less net because they didn't do the inspection, they didn't put the things in it. Now, keep this in mind. Most buyers, when they go to buy a house, are buying just a little bit above their comfort level. This is human nature. I have a buyer who wants to buy a $300,000 house right now. We're looking, we've, we've gone to 325, 350, and now we're looking to make an offer on a 375 house. If I got a buyer that's looking to buy a million dollar house, now they want to, they're pretty soon they're going to buy a $1.3 million house. It's just human nature. And why is that important? Okay, when they come in to buy that house at 375 and they want to buy one for the 300, they're stretching themselves. And the last thing they want to do after they put in a down payment and pay all the closing costs is come up with five grand to replace the carpet. They don't want to do it. You get it out of their, off their plate, you build it into the price of the house, and now they've financed it. You can't finance it as a buyer. You can't go to the lender and say, well, I want to buy this house. Also, I want you to finance $5,000 of the carpet for me. No, you got to come up with it out of your pocket. But if the seller does it, the house is then the price is bumped up, you are financing it. Plus, it's less hassle. Moving into a house, you want to move in, unpack, start enjoying the house. You don't want to screw around with stuff. The last com- reason to have your house look nice, because people buy a house mainly on emotion. I can take two people into a house. I take, excuse me, I take a person at two different houses, and I did this this weekend. Same floor plan, same complex, same everything, except for one house was beautifully staged with gorgeous furniture and pictures and vases with flowers. The other one was vacant. Same house, same complex. The vacant one was slightly bigger, slightly lower price, and my buyer wants to buy the one that was staged. Now, we had this conversation, by the way. There was one other reason. That floor had really nice, uh, uh, that, that fake wood vinyl flooring. It looked beautiful inside. Some other features. But they admitted, they said, it just feels so much nicer. Now, when I'm a buyer's representative, a buyer's broker, I try to talk them out of that thinking because I don't want them to get sold on the staging because I don't want them to spend money on something that's going to go away as soon as they close the house. And they, we talked about it. But it is a very, and they admit it because I've talked about it with them three or four times. So back to you as the seller. Stage your home. I don't have any hard data to prove that it pays off, but everybody I know in this industry who's been at it long enough says, you stage a home, you're going to get the money out of it. Jim Rockwell had that conversation with him today. He has a home that he just listed, up, and it's, it, I think it's, he's in contract for $1.3 million, spent $4,000 staging it. He's convinced he got three times that out of it. People buy on emotion. So, um, let's see. Clutter. Get rid of clutter. Rent a storage unit if you have to. Some people throw everything in the garage. Don't do that. When, you, when, I, when you're looking at a house and you go in, you can't see the, how you could park your cars and you can see where you could store your stuff, not a good idea. You put it in storage, spend a little bit of money, or maybe try and get rid of some of it. Okay, and one more bullet point. Make your house accessible to show. Open houses, brokers opens are one way to do it. But don't limit the way that people can get out of your house. you got to figure out how to make it available, and don't be there when the buyer shows up. It makes buyers uncomfortable. They don't feel like they can freely look around. Real common sense, though. Don't, you know, put secure little 
valuables that are easy to put in your pocket. I don't know if stories of people having things stolen, but it does it does happen. Now, when you're when you're getting ready to buy, sell a house, you want to think again like a buyer, but also you want to think like a seller. You want to make sure that whoever comes in on an offer to you, they have as few contingencies as possible because every contingency the buyer has gives them an opportunity to do one of two things. One is renegotiate, two, back out. Try to get rid of the inspection contingency by having an inspection up front. If you're selling a HOA, there's a review period where the buyer in the contract has a right to review all the documents, have them read the documents with their real estate broker in advance, sign off. Get rid of all the contingencies. It's really hard to get rid of finance contingencies, but that should be in, ideally when I'm making an offer or when, I, when, I'm, when I'm accepting an offer, I want no contingencies. From my buyer, my offer is stronger. If I'm a seller, I have a more certain offer. Um, let's see. I don't have time today, really, to jump into all the forms that you're going to be doing as a real estate broker. I mean, as, as a seller with, with a real estate firm. Um, how much time do we have right now, Eric? We got about three minutes. Three, okay, I'm going to cover. I got a quick story. Okay. There's a form that you would, with any real estate firm in this area, there's a form that you'll fill out called a Form 1A, and it is the exclusive sale and listing agreement. There is a clause in that form that states, shoot, I should have highlighted before I got here because I'm trying to find it. Um, okay, I got to tell you a quick story about how it happens, okay? It, it implies that if a buyer makes an offer on your house at full price, that you must accept and continue with the offer. It's not true. It implies that. And I'll give you a story of what happened. One of my sellers about three years ago was in a big hurry to get out of town. We listed the home for, eh, I forget, 690 He got an offer for 690 He changed his mind. He counted at 710 The buyer's broker, who works for a large firm, said, we're going to sue you. Well, they didn't have grounds to do it, but it cost us 500 bucks to get an attorney on our side to say, take a hike. And it's because of that clause in the exclusive listing agreement, 1A, it's an interpretation. And every one of my sellers, I go through that clause and we talk about it in detail and I would have no problem and I would encourage you to strike the clause. There's no reason why it has to be in there. And I might have some real estate brokers right now that are raising their eyebrows. They're listening to me. There's, or, or add an addendum to it that clarifies what it really means. So I'm not going to go in the nitty-gritty on that because it take about five minutes. I think we're about wrapped up here, aren't we? Getting pretty close to the end. Got two minutes. So today we talked about a couple of articles in the Seattle Times that I recommend you read. One's called, it was up on the, uh, the 11th, published by the FYI guy, End of the Seattle Boom. Another one published March 6th, Market Turnaround, and then one about Wells Fargo. Next week, I'm going to have um, Damon Shelton from Element Smart Roofing here. They do uh, green roofs, you know, those ones you see that, are, that have plants and stuff growing on them. They do a lot of cool stuff. So you've been listening to Home Talk with Greg McKim. I air each Tuesday at 3 o'clock here on 1150 KKNW. You can reach me off air at 206-250-6545 or email me at gmckim at loanzilla.com. Or listen to my podcasts under audio archives at 1150kknw.com. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next week.